You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to have with us a close friend and ally, Beth Cameron. Dr. Beth Cameron is the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Advisor for Global Health Security and Biodefense at the White House. Beth, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. I'm really delighted to be here. I wanted to start with a broad question, which is, in simple terms, what are your top-line reflections on, on the first 16 months of the Biden administration's approach to pandemic response and preparedness. And that means major achievements, lessons learned, areas where less progress possible than originally envisioned, big outstanding demands that still remain. You, you of course, started well before inauguration and laying the groundwork. You went undercover, as I recall. We couldn't find you for about six months. Uh, And uh, you went into like some kind of cave somewhere and uh, with two or three (laughs) other people. And we saw the results in in a burst of action in the first day, two days of the Biden administration as all sorts of the first national security directive, all sorts of presidential memoranda and other things were issued that showed that someone had been very, very busy trying to make sure that they got out of the box very rapidly. And then, of course, you've been, until recently, the senior director at the National Security Council for Global Health Security and Biodefense. Raj Pajabi's moved over to take that position, and now you're in the in the position that we've just referred to, still playing a vitally important role across a, a spectrum of issues that we'll talk about. But let's start with that first question. What are your big reflections? Thanks, Steve. So obviously, as you outlined, there's been a lot of work and it's been a 24-7 effort since day one on the COVID response, but also on broader health security. And I think just to hit the, the top line point, I think that I can encapsulate it by saying that the last 16 months have been an exercise in walking and chewing gum at the same time. And this is a mantra that the administration uses a lot, that we have to be able um, as a nation to, to do multiple things at once with a number of crises around the world. And what I mean by that is when we took office on January 20th, there were already nearly 400,000 Americans dead 2 million deaths globally from COVID-19, and that was the first day. And job number one was obviously implementing, putting in place a real federal response, an effective federal response to the pandemic. But President Biden elected to simultaneously start to prepare for the next pandemic and for health emergencies. And as you outlined, he did that um, both in Executive Order 13987 and in the first National Security Memorandum. And what he did in plain terms is he stood up a COVID response team and gave them the authority for working you know, day and night on the COVID response in the United States. But he also reestablished an enduring office on the National Security Council staff. And I've had the privilege of building and leading that team in its first year. And I came on board to do that. That team is dedicated to monitoring and responding to emerging biological threats and looking towards the next pandemic. So I'll give you a couple of quick points on what we've achieved and also some of the lessons that we've learned. 
Obviously, on COVID, we've done a lot. Um, the United States, and I'll talk mostly here about the global response. We joined COVAX. We became the largest donor to the response. We led the first COVID-19 summit. We've shared 500 million vaccines with the world free of charge. We've committed to share 1.2 billion doses. We've provided over $19 billion of assistance. So the U.S. has been very active, and we've been a leader but as you know, this is a monumental task. And while we can control COVID-19, we're, we're not likely to eradicate the disease. And so that means we need to suppress it. We need a focus-driven effort that builds COVID into our, our regular global health programming. And it also means we can't afford complacency because what we know about this virus is that it's predictably unpredictable. That brings me to what we knew in the first day about the fact that this pandemic had already been going on for a year. We knew the next bio threat could emerge at any time. We know that biological risks are growing, the risk of zoonotic disease, the risk of an accidental release, the risk of a dangerous use of a biological weapon. And so we took the conscious decision to really lean forward and spend a lot of time, even while we were fighting this pandemic, to work on getting prepared for the next one and exercising that with the Ebola outbreaks that occurred in the first couple of months um, in Guinea and the Democratic Republic of Congo, with influenza circulating now among wild birds in America, cases that we're seeing popping in humans, but also monitoring for the potential of, for a pandemic strain, and African swine fever, which doesn't impact humans from a health perspective, but really is a large economic risk. And it's back in the Western Hemisphere in Hispaniola. So we've been quietly busy working on all of the other background uh, threats so that we can stay focused on the COVID-19 pandemic and really update our plans so that we're ready and practiced. Very dedicated for some time in trying to promote the Financial Intermediary Fund, a, a long-term capacity to fund preparedness. And it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle, but it still remains a priority. The administration was $4.5 in the in the budget, the FY23 budget dedicated to this. We've got the World Bank IMF meetings next week coming forward. We've got the G7. Tell us what's the prospects for the fifth right now. This is something you have been very personally and deeply engaged in. So we've made a lot of progress on the Global Health Security and Pandemic Preparedness Fund, which is envisioned as a financial intermediary fund at the World Bank. We've been discussing this fund for the last year, and the G20 has taken up the mantle on pushing it forward. We're now working urgently with partners around the world and with the World Bank to secure seed contributions to the fund. And you mentioned the $4.5 billion, the historic request for $4.5 billion in mandatory funding for this, which is part of an almost $90 billion request that the administration has put forward for pandemic preparedness in the United States and globally. And we also have $250 million already in American Rescue Plan Act funding, which has been absolutely instrumental in getting partners on board. So we've unlocked support from close G7 partners. We've been working with the major G20 economies. And I'm hopeful that the fund will be launched this summer and that it will really prioritize three things. First, a globally linked disease surveillance and early warning system. We've been talking about real-time biosurveillance for decades. It's time that we actually put real-time biosurveillance to work for the world. 
Second, we want to see the fund be available for the most vulnerable countries to build their capacity to be prepared for epidemics and for pandemics. And that means investments in lab systems, emergency operations capacity, public health personnel, and all of the other core global health security capacities that are also so important to the everyday health system that countries need to be prepared and to, to help their people. And then finally, the third thing we'd like to see this fund participate in is rapid research and development and regulatory systems that are needed to create and then rapidly scale and distribute countermeasures. Obviously, this is an area that is near and dear to to many of us, the ability to make more accessible more quickly countermeasures for emerging biological threats, meaning vaccines, tests, treatment, personal protective equipment. That means regional investments, and it means a more specific plan um, for how we're actually going to do that. We've obviously made some progress with investments in new development of vaccines in Africa and around the world, but we haven't made enough progress with a roadmap about how we're actually going to get there and the financial investments to do so. It looks like there's some momentum building in support of the fifth. Looks like it'll be at the World Bank. That's good news. Looks like WHO is supportive. That's very good news. G20 through the high-level independent panel made a significant contribution in arguing for, for this at a $10 billion per year level. Indonesia's hosting and, and, and seems to be supportive. The G7 is coming forward. When you look at the budget, the Biden administration budget, $4.5 billion over five years, a mandatory budget, an exceptional budget of almost a billion a year. That's quite good news over a five-year period, one billion, almost $1 billion per year. Very important. Start, I'll give us some advantages as we're dealing with some of our allies, Germany, UK, France, Japan, but also the leadership within low- and middle-income countries. Tell us a bit about your strategy. So it's really important that this Pandemic Preparedness and Health Security Fund is helpful and supported not only by the economies that have historically been donors, but it's critical outside of the G20 that we have regional institutions like the African Union, that we have ASEAN countries, that we have countries from Latin and South America involved at the very beginning. And so one of the the places where the United States has been working really closely with other partners in and outside of the G20 is to ensure that low-income countries and regional organizations that need to be in on the ground floor are there. And so that is one of the things that over the last couple of months coming out of the G20 has rightly taken some important time to get right. And I think that's well worth it because if this fund doesn't serve countries, it won't be successful um, and it won't be supported. In terms of who's supporting the fund, um, we have strong political support from our partners in Europe and the European Commission, where we've put together a joint plan for fighting COVID and advancing health security that includes a contribution, a public commitment to the fund. And we have, I would say, um, strong support across the G20. I think the G20 has taken this forward as a political commitment, and that's been vital. But we really are going to need broad inclusion, not only of countries outside of the G20, as well as philanthropies, non-governmental organizations, the private sector, this fund really does need to include a broader swath. And so those are the types of questions we're working on and the conversations that we're having, particularly with Treasury and the World Bank, who are really leading on this for us. Thank you. How worried are you about the impact of Ukraine on budgets? Not just for the fifth, but 
you know, you've got the global fund replenishment in the fall, $18 billion ask, about a 30% increase for the for donors who, you know, were contributing on the $14 billion last three-year cycle. This is a tough year, and there's lots of asks out there with Gavi, COVAX, CEPI, Global Fund now trying to get the fifth going. There's quite a traffic jam of big, very worthy, all very worthy fundraising. And now you've got a very demanding and very open-ended and uncertain crisis in Ukraine. And many of the budgets for these sort of things are being used to fund some of the resettlement and some of the emergency response uh, by some of the European partners into, and including EU, into Ukraine. Well, obviously, our work to support Ukraine is, is paramount. Our work to support the COVID response is paramount. And our work to support the Global Fund and pandemic preparedness going forward is paramount. And I do think that that points to the world that we live in, where we have a number of transnational crises. And we need to have a real conversation ourselves. And I think the president's budget request, particularly this mandatory historic request for 90 billion in pandemic preparedness makes the point that if we don't prepare now, we're gonna be caught flat footed by the crises of the future. So we have to do both of these things. We have to end the AIDS crisis, the AIDS epidemic. We have to be prepared for the next pandemic. We have to solve our challenges and crises in Europe right now caused by Russia's atrocities and the invasion of Ukraine. We have to be prepared to do all of those things and to find creative ways and creative financing solutions to do them. But we can't stop worrying about the next crisis. When you look at what COVID-19 has wrought on the world in terms of lives lost, you know, economic, huge economic losses on top of that, the return on, on the investment for the dollars that we're talking about in this fund, it's really staggering. And the latest G20 report that's out there looking at these issues um, makes this point, I think, quite compellingly. And so what I'm hopeful to see at the Spring World Bank meetings is a strong uh, endorsement of the need to get this catalyzed and established so that we can start the work of, of building the capacities we need. We're two plus years into this pandemic and the next biological crisis is definitely not gonna wait for us. Let's talk with the time that remains around some of the forces that are now in operation, right? I mean, it comes into kind of two big baskets, I think. One is the question of time. Time is not friendly to global health security and global health security policy. We've had the hanging over this field for some time, the cycle of crisis and complacency that sets in. And COVID-19 pandemic, it's lasted well over two years now. Uh, the 1918 flu was, a, was 18 months. So people's, the longevity of time weighs heavily on people and feeds this very common and widespread sense of exhaustion, frustration, anger sometimes, a desire to move on. And we're seeing this play out politically and behaviorally across many different countries. This isn't just an American phenomenon by any, by any stretch of the imagination. And, and it raises new challenges. So we're in the second year of a four-year administration. Given that backdrop, how do you, how do you retool in your own strategy here to make sure that we continue to see steady progress because these headwinds these headwinds are there we can see them every day so i think it's 
you hit on the most important point, which is complacency and political will to continue focusing on crises like this one. First, we need commitments to resource this pandemic, the response to it, and the next. And as you know, the president's made a request of Congress for funding in an emergency supplemental for COVID response here at home and globally. And we need that funding. We need to, to continue the job and to finish it to get shots in arms and access to tests and treatment. But we also must make the point now that we need resources for the future. We also need mechanisms that are truly global in how we respond. And we need routine, rote ways to not hesitate when the next biological threat occurs. And that means we need to exercise more frequently as a nation and as a world for a variety of different types of biological disasters. It also means that we need to be much uh, better able to look uh, within the first week, days, hours of recognizing that we have an emerging pathogen that can, for example, transmit sustainably between humans, we need to be able to spring into action. That means we're going to over-respond sometimes. We're going to make the call to do more than what was necessary because we won't know what was necessary. And we really do need to practice that. And so one of the things that I'm really proud that our team has been able to do is to practice that kind of response, that kind of information sharing, that kind of work um, at the highest levels of government for every potential emerging threat that we see, because we just don't know what the next biological crisis is going to be. And so I, I think in a nutshell, one way to resolve complacency is to make it natural that we are not responding to the next pandemic. We're responding to every potential biological threat we see, and we're doing it routinely, and we're doing it with an established team within the White House and throughout the government. And we're making sure that our leaders are practiced and educated so that they know what a crisis looks like and they know when we're not sure and they're ready to make the decisions they need to make. So I'm excited about that progress that we've been able to make, but it's definitely progress that needs to continue on a regular basis. Let's talk a little bit about sort of some of the other changes we're seeing, right? I mean, Omicron swept through the world, infecting an enormous number of people and creating a wall of immunity from infection that combined with the progress made in vaccinations, which has been tremendous, even with all the inequities in that, it did change, it created these protections for much of the world's, not all, but much of the world's populations. Deaths and hospitalizations have dropped. Now we have antivirals with us and we see the politics changing around this pandemic and pretty rapidly, quite remarkably, quite rapidly, and it cuts across political lines, I mean, in different ways. And when we saw the omnibus funding bill, the 1.5 trillion bill come forward, the domestic and international response on COVID fell out of that. When we saw the supplemental, it, got, it kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and the international dropped out. And it, it, this has set off uh, alarm bells not just here, but elsewhere, where we're kind of setting the course, other countries are going to follow. Tell us, what do you think happened? Because it was a dynamic that involved interactions internally within the Hill, where they were suddenly saying, we're out of an emergency, we have to have setbacks, we have to have offsets, which means we've got to give up something that's important to all of us. It's a whole different psychology. 
And we had the administration itself making different calculations. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of White House calculations, but just step back for a moment. What happened to create these outcomes, which many have cast as a debacle and a severe setback? And will we have another moment soon as we move forward with the Ukraine response and elsewhere? Is there another moment coming up in June to regroup and try and get the international in particular back on track? So first, Steve, just to be perfectly clear, the White House has been asking Congress for money for the COVID response here and globally. And we need we need that funding. We need it. We need it for people here. We need it for the global response. And we need it because this virus, every time we think we know where we are with it, we're, we're not. Um, anybody who's predicting exactly what's going to happen with this pandemic is generally wrong. I will say that it's clear looking at Omicron, as you mentioned, looking at the way the trajectory of the pandemic, that our strategy for controlling it needs to continue to evolve. And that means that this is still an emergency. There's two pieces. There's ending the acute phase of this. And the second piece, which is critical, is building our capability to deal with everything this virus throws at us, all the variants that will inevitably come our way and the new advances in vaccines, diagnostics, treatments that we're going to see, which will be helpful for the next emerging biological crisis. So it's a twofer. But make no mistake, we still are going to need those things for this pandemic. And so I think potentially one of the things that's happening is the conversation about how we are looking at COVID-19 as part of the global health landscape for the future has been confused with a lack of still needing to be better prepared than we are to deal with this virus and everything it throws at us. And so I would say we're not out of this acute phase of this emergency, but we need to be. And that means a sustained budgetary proposition. We know that the president, after the September 22nd summit, there was a commitment to have a second summit by President Biden in partnership now with regional bodies and and other partners in the first quarter of this year. And that timeline has shifted. We're now in April, but there's still work underway on this to make this happen. Tell us what you can at the moment. What's the status and what's the significance of the summit? Thanks, Steve. So the president hosted the first COVID summit last September, and we've been actively preparing for the next summit. Um, We're working with several co-hosts from different parts of the world who head up different regional groupings, and we're building a summit that's going to be commitment-driven. It will have two main goals with the overarching frame that we want to redouble our collective efforts on the COVID response and future pandemic preparedness. And one of the, the main themes of this is to ensure that we aren't becoming complacent about the COVID response. So first first goal is to end the acute phase of the COVID pandemic. And the second is to get prepared for variants and for future pandemic threats. And so that includes linking the COVID response even more tightly into global health programming, recognizing that it's a long-term challenge and we're going to be dealing with it for quite some time, but that it's still urgent. There's still an emergency piece to this summit, particularly for the most vulnerable countries and those that haven't had access to medical countermeasures. 
So in advance of the summit, we're calling on world leaders, but also civil society, non-governmental organizations, philanthropists, and the private sector. And the summit will build on the themes and commitments from the first summit last September, but it will focus on locally led and globally supported solutions. And the main goals here are getting shots into arms, deploying tests and treatments, especially for the highest risk populations, expanding and protecting the health workforce, minimizing disruptions to routine and essential health services, enhancing access to medical countermeasures, and generating sustainable financing for pandemic preparedness and health security. So it's a tall order list of the largest challenges facing us. We want to actually get a conversation going about how to be more diligent and metrics-driven about solving those challenges. There's obviously a lot of work on each and every one of them, But what we need to do is drill down country by country and identify the barriers and bring, you know, bring those solutions to the table. And that's what we're really hoping to achieve with the summit. The framework sounds like it's evolved significantly in what you've just laid out. Congratulations on that. I think it's been very adaptive, frankly, to some of the shifts that have happened, right? There's been, there's been some measure of rethink. There's some measure clearly of continuity of priorities, but also there's there's some some adjustments that have been made that take account of the profound changes that have happened. Absolutely. The the goal here is really to build a summit that is not about the day, that is about actually making making the gains that we need in each and every one of those challenges and then taking that work forward, uh, working with co-hosts. And we were very, very specific about asking co-hosts that represent different parts of the globe, different groupings in, in society and, and countries, so that we're really sharing this work and making sure uh, that we keep it on leaders' radars and every single possible group that we can. All right. Back in September, September 3rd, the administration rolled out its American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, AP3, around $65 billion over a seven to 10 year time frame. A very interesting focus. You can tell us a bit more about that, but it sort of languished. It didn't really get the attention it deserved and it needs to get placed into a budgetary context. Now we've seen the $86.2 billion five-year mandatory budget, which incorporates many of these same elements into this. And so now it has moved into the budget, in effect, which is a very, very good step. Tell us about why this is so important and what are the major component elements of this new, newly reconfigured AP3 that's in, included in the budget? So I'm really excited about the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan and also about the work that we're doing to look at our biodefense strategies across the board. The president asked us for a biopreparedness review on his first day in office, and that review has been undergoing for several months. And as an interim step, we released last September, as you mentioned, the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, which really sets out the ambitious vision for fundamentally transforming our ability to prevent, detect, and respond. And fundamentally transforming sounds dramatic, but I think we've all witnessed the need to actually fundamentally transform, to make terms like real-time biosurveillance and at-home diagnostics and on-demand medical countermeasures. These are terms in my field we've been talking about for decades, but we really have to be able to achieve them. And when we can't, what we see are some of the vulnerabilities that we've all experienced over the last two years with COVID-19. So we're really excited about what's happening across our agencies. We've been working with about 16 departments and agencies, every agency from USAID to the Department of Health and Human Services to the FBI. 
to the State Department to ensure that we have an updated biodefense and pandemic preparedness plan. And that builds on inclusive of AP3. And to make this happen, to be able to implement it, we really do need the FY23 president's budget request to be appropriated. And this mandatory request goes above and beyond our discretionary budget. And the reason for that is because we we need to be able to be prepared for these types of massive disruptions to society that set back literally every other agenda item that we have. And so the funding within this budgetary request will build to develop effective vaccines and therapeutics to be able to create an early warning system building on the Center for Outbreak Analytics and Disease Forecasting at the CDC that was stood up um, over the course of the last couple of months in the administration. And it will also make sure that we're prepared for accidental and deliberate releases. So watch this space. We'll be talking more about this in the coming weeks and months. Um, But collectively, we'll be working to build on the lessons of COVID-19 and also make sure that we're prepared for whatever else comes our way. Thank you. I wish you the best, best of luck in moving this all forward. And, you know, we stand ready to be as helpful as we can on this. For our listeners, can you explain what does it mean to call something a mandatory budget over a five-year period? I think for many people, that's not a familiar construct. So what, what does that mean? It does set it over and above the, the normal budget process. Yeah, mandatory budget requests are pieces of the budget that are outside of the regular programming. And so what that means is that we're requesting an additional almost $90 billion specific to pandemic preparedness and health security available for a five-year period. But we still have to do our global health programming. We still have to be prepared for climate change. We can't rob the regular budgetary allocations. What it recognizes is that we need some significantly new measures to include rigorously working, as you interviewed Matt Hepburn a couple weeks ago, I think, on your program, to be able to take pandemics off the table by investing in countermeasures for all of the viral families that are potentially uh, able to cause pandemics. That's an infusion that we just don't have elsewhere in the budget. And to make that kind of investment, we really do need a special and historic request. Beth, it's been great having you with us today. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for your leadership. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.